Good afternoon. Good afternoon, my name is John, and it's my privilege to preach the Word of God for you, for us today. Uh, you can go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word, and we're continuing to do this so that uh, as you, and keep your Bible open as we listen into the sermon to, to make sure and follow along, not only to follow along, to make sure this is God's Word preached to you, and you're not only taking my word for it, but you're receiving God's Word for yourself. Uh, for reference, I'll be preaching from the ESV, or English Standard Version. Uh, and please uh, follow along as we do. And as always, let's try to put aside any distractions as best as we can so that we can give of our hearts and full attention to the preaching of God's Word today. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> we'll be looking at verses 54 to 59. We're continuing the sermon series, studying through the Gospel of Luke, in order to rediscover Jesus, and for some of us to discover Jesus for the first time. But together, we want to learn who Jesus is, what he did, what he claimed to be, and what he claimed to do, and what it means for us today to follow him, especially as we continue to look at the hard and difficult sayings of Jesus Christ in these chapters. Last week, we saw in the previous passage that Jesus brings to us peace, peace with God. And when we were divided from God because of our sin, Jesus came and, and crossing that division, crossing that gap to bring us peace with God through salvation in his name. We saw that it was, through, it was possible through Jesus' baptism of death on the cross as he died in our place. Everyone who believes in him is reconciled with God and no longer in danger of the coming fire of judgment when Jesus returns. But as he's uh, keeping, uh, pointing eyes and attention to that judgment day, we learned how serious of a matter it is because Jesus' peace will also bring division, division between believers and unbelievers. And when such division over Jesus takes place in our families, we all the more need to proclaim Jesus' message of peace, to proclaim it with great patience and perseverance and with much prayer so that our family members could hear the gospel from our mouths and come to hear and believe in Jesus Christ. And so after all these hard sayings and difficult teachings, Jesus will now get people's attention to think about all that they have heard and for them to decide and come to some conclusions and do something about it. They'll need to make the right judgment about Jesus and his teachings, which is also what we will need to do today as we hear Jesus' words. So please follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 12, verses 54 to 59. <clears throat> he also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, take an, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. It's the word of God. Amen. And so what Jesus is teaching here, you, you, you capture this, his tone. It's a very serious tone, and it's... 
It's important because in life, we must make the right judgments and avoid wrong judgments. Making wrong judgments are costly. Sometimes it's a small cost, but still costly. If we make a wrong judgment about how much traffic there will be on the road and how much time we need to get to our destination, if we're wrong about that, well, we're going to be late again. And sometimes, at other times, the cost of being wrong in that, in that way is manageable. But other times, the cost seems so great and the damage may be irreversible. For example, if an employee makes one wrong judgment, his or her wrong judgment might cost the company a lot of money, maybe even taint the company's reputation and lose a majority of their customers. And even more serious, if a doctor, a surgeon, makes one wrong judgment, let's say in an open-heart surgery, his or her wrong judgment might cost patients their lives. And so we may not be in such high-cost, high-stake situations regularly in life, but there is one judgment call that all of us must absolutely get right. We cannot get this wrong. There's one wrong judgment we cannot make because it's a matter of spiritual life or death. A wrong judgment about Jesus, a wrong judgment about our need for him will cost sinners like us an eternity in hell when Jesus comes on the day of judgment. If only we make the right judgment about Jesus, about ourselves, about our need for him, and how realizing how he, Jesus alone offers sinners the only solution to our problem of sin and hell, only then can we be justified, can we be made right with God to receive his peace and be saved from the judgment that is to come. So the one thing for us today is this. Make the right and reasonable judgment. Be justified by faith in Jesus or be judged by him for your sins. Make the right and reasonable judgment. Be justified by faith in Jesus or be judged by him for your sins. We'll look at three ways Jesus calls us to make the right and reasonable judgment. And he's going to call us to think and process and, and keep in mind important truths as we consider what he teaches today. So to make the right and reasonable judgment, first, it's by using our natural ability from God. Second, by addressing our hypocrisy before God. And third, by believing Jesus justifies sinners freely as the Son of God. Could you bow your heads with me one more time as I preach, pray for the preaching of God's word today? Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we're yet again come across difficult truths and hard sayings that we must not look over, that we must not ignore, that we must not skip. And so, Lord, will you help open up our ears, our spiritual ears and our spiritual eyes, that we may hear and see your truths. And will you soften our hearts that we may make the right judgments, guide us, Holy Spirit, and direct us so that we can discern and decide what is true of you, what is true about ourselves, so that we may stand before you, not judged, but justified by faith in you, Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So, Lord, lead us, guide us today, and help us to understand the depths of your truths. It may be life to our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, make the right and reasonable judgment by using our natural ability from God. So far in Luke chapter 12, Jesus has been teaching his disciples. 
And we know why the disciples are there with him. It's because they have decided to follow Jesus. And they, as they follow him, they're learning from him the truths and the words of life. But we're reminded here in verse 54 that there is also a great crowd surrounding them. But we're not completely sure why they are there. In Luke chapter 12, earlier in verse 1, it describes how there are so many thousands of people around Jesus, but they were just trampling and stepping on each other. And later on in verse 13, there's someone in the crowd who interrupts, dares to interrupt Jesus as he's teaching about spiritual life and death. He interrupts Jesus to bring up his own agenda, telling Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him. And so there's this huge crowd of people just there, unsure why they're there, and maybe they're not sure why, for themselves why they're there. And the, but the reality is they must have been overhearing what Jesus has been teaching so far. They've been around Jesus long enough to witness what he could do and hear from him. And now Jesus decides to directly speak to the crowds because they will need to do something in response to all that they have seen and all that they have heard. They can't just be standing around Jesus, indecisive or neutral about him. So Jesus starts with an interesting introduction. He says in verses 54 to 55, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. And so it seems the people in those days that Jesus is talking to, they knew much more about weather than we might today. They didn't need weather reports, weather apps on their phone. They could just look and make a right judgment about the weather patterns very accurately. Whenever they see a cloud rising in the west, probably gathering moisture from the Mediterranean Sea and coming toward them, they knew it was going to rain. When they see the south wind blowing from the dry areas of the land, over the land, they know it will be especially hot today. So they're experts at reading the weather. Today, for us, we barely get the laundry in fully dry. It's only after it starts raining we run out to get the laundry. We barely get time to put on our raincoats, our jasujan, right, driving our motorcycles. We get half wet before people stop and change. But these people back then could correctly accurately observe, interpret, make the right judgments, and decide what to do about their schedules based on the weather. A cloud in the west, oh, that means don't do laundry today. A south wind blowing, oh, that means carry around some extra water. It's going to be extra dry. And so as Jesus is bringing up their ability, what is his point? Jesus is getting preparing to get their attention, because in order to make a decision about Jesus, they will need to make the right and reasonable judgment about him. And by, ta and by talking about how well they interpret the weather, Jesus is explaining that they already have this natural ability to make right and reasonable judgments and decisions in life. That's the point. He's pointing that out. They are able to make good, right decisions from good, right judgments as they move on in their life. It's a short point, but it's a necessary point to understand before we move on to understand the rest of this passage. And so we have this natural ability to judge what is right and what is wrong. And it's because, it's, it's because of how God has created us in His image. 
God who is perfect in his reasoning, perfect in his knowledge, perfect in his wisdom. He makes perfect judgments. He created us. And so there are traces of his reasoning, judgment-making, about what is right and what is wrong woven into our very being. The author C.S. Lewis explains this reality, this embedded reality in our creation, in an interesting way in the first chapter of his book, if you've read Mere Christianity. Never thought about this way before. But he explains that everyone has heard people quarreling and arguing with others before. So just imagine when you heard people arguing in your life, perhaps even yourself caught in a recent argument. They say things like, how would you like it if anyone did the same thing to you? Or, that was my seat. I was there first. Or, leave him alone. Leave her alone. She's not, he's not doing you any harm. Or, give me some of yours. I gave you a bit of mine. Or, come on, you promised, so make good on your promise. Or even, hey, that's not fair. That's not right. And so you may have heard such arguments. And, and the reason, he says, why people argue this way is because everyone naturally has the ability of judging what is right and what is wrong. It's so embedded in us it's that our alerts go up when we feel that someone is breaking that standard of right and wrong. And when they do, we sense it, we feel it, and we might even retaliate. No, it's calling out that it's wrong, that it's unjust, that it's unfair. He says, quote, arguing is trying to show that the other person is in the wrong. And there will be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. End quote. So in other words, if no one had the natural ability of judging what is right and wrong, we wouldn't be arguing with one another at all. There would be nothing to argue about. But people argue like this every day, whether it's between young children as soon as they can learn to communicate and talk with one another, all the way to grown adults. We argue because we have this sense of what is right and what is wrong. And this sense and ability is from God. And so therefore, we should use this ability, use this sense to make right and reasonable judgments about God. We should use our reasoning to agree with what God says is good. We should agree that it is good. What God says is wrong and evil, we should agree it's wrong and evil. But while we were created in God's image, unlike God, our judgment of right and wrong has been broken, tainted by our sin. And like Adam and Eve, we decide for ourselves what is right. We decide for ourselves what is wrong. And, go, and we go against God's standard. We go against his judgment. And going against God for sinners is a very natural thing. As sinners, we grow to be selfish and stubborn against God. And we would even dare to argue with him. What God says is right, we dare argue it's wrong. What God says is wrong, we dare argue it's right. And so this leads us to the second lesson. That we make the right and reasonable judgment by addressing our hypocrisy before God. And so, we know that Jesus often called out hypocrites for their hypocrisy. He doesn't hold back on hypocrisy when he sees it and he calls it as it is. 
And it's not because Jesus is just being mean. He exposes hypocrisy plainly because it is a dangerous sin to be caught in. It's like anesthesia for our souls because it dulls our ability to reason and make right judgments about God, about ourselves, about the life that we live in. And hypocrisy makes us think that we are safe when we're not. As it convinces us, it is somehow okay to act like we are good and right on the outside while everything on the inside is wrong and evil. So as Jesus points out to their natural ability, he cries out in verse 56, You hypocrites. Jesus calls out to them to get their attention, wanting to wake them up from their spiritual slumber in hypocrisy. Jesus sees through their pretending and presents them with their guilt. He puts before them this charge of hypocrisy when he asks the crowd, You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? People have the natural ability to see the signs of nature and make right judgments, come to the right conclusions. But why do they not know how to interpret all that Jesus was saying and doing? This is what Jesus means by interpreting the present time. Jesus came, and when he came to the earth, he was starting a new time in history. He was establishing a new era by proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom has come. And Jesus came with sufficient signs and more than enough evidence for people to put their trust in him. So when they saw Jesus with their own eyes performing miracles like no one had ever done before, when they heard Jesus teach with their own ears, they should have done the only reasonable thing that they could do. They should have begun making the right judgments and come to the right conclusion about Jesus. That Jesus is not just another moral teacher like they have heard before. Jesus is not just another man. They should have started to connect the pieces and realize that Jesus might truly be who he claims to be, the Son of God and the Savior King. As they followed him around, what was going on in their minds? Just imagine seeing with your own eyes when Jesus healed all kinds of sicknesses that there was no cure for. Not by medicine or with any tools Jesus cured them, but by his word and by his touch. What would it be like seeing the dead son of a widow and a dead daughter of of parents struck by mourning and, and weeping? What would it be like seeing these dead children be raised back to life? And what about seeing Jesus cast out demons that afflicted and tortured people and even hearing those demons cry out to Jesus as they came out, you are the Son of God. For all these people around Jesus, seeing and hearing, what did they conclude? How did they use their right and reasonable judgment for Jesus? They didn't repent. They did not believe. Instead, they decided to reject all reasoning and stubbornly keep their wrong conclusions. Stubbornly holding on to the conclusion that either Jesus was just the son of a carpenter, saying, is this not Joseph's son? Don't we know his family? Don't we know the town he grew up in? They stubbornly kept to their conclusion that he was just a human being like them. If not that, 
The other conclusion was that Jesus was even worse than they were. That Jesus was even worse of a sinner who deserved to die at their hands. And as they stubbornly held to that conclusion, the crowds would eventually plan for Jesus to be betrayed, arrested, put on a false trial, under false accusations, and finally crucified him to death on a cross. It is right for Jesus to call such people hypocrites. It's not because they don't know. It's not because they haven't heard, not because they haven't seen. They know. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. And they should know and be able to interpret what is right. But instead, they act wrongly. Such hypocrisy in their response to Jesus' undeniable power, to his felt authority as he taught and did great miracles they never seen before. Why were they pretending not to know what was happening in this present time of Jesus? So when we think about the religious leaders and teachers who were the Pharisees and the scribes during that time, this, their picture of hypocrisy becomes clear. Because they were the ones in the crowd who especially knew the scriptures. They knew of the prophecies of the coming Messiah, the Christ who was to come. They knew he would be mighty in power, servant of the Lord, who would come to save their people and save them from their sins. But when the Messiah came to them face to face, teaching heart-piercing truths, uncovering hidden sins, even their hypocrisy no one else knew about, they conclude that he's crazy. They conclude that he is a madman possessed by demons. When they saw Jesus, his signs and wonders, they concluded that he was doing so by the power of the devil. In fact, these are the true hypocrites. And in their hypocrisy, they keep trying to catch Jesus, thinking that Jesus was the hypocrite, trying to catch Jesus and provoke him to say something wrong. And they were pressing in on him, watching him, so they could catch him and kill him. Hunt him down like an animal. In their hypocrisy, they saw the signs. They saw the evidence. They twisted it, warped it to turn Jesus' claims to make him out to be something who he is not. This is the ultimate act of hypocrisy. Stubbornly rejecting and twisting what is true to fit their own wrong judgments that they may be seen as right. There are still people like this today. There's a story of a speaker's corner in London where people can come to exercise their freedom of speech and bring up any matter in a lawful way. In Jakarta, it would be like the uh, Bundaran, the roundabout where in, around Hotel Indonesia, around that monument, um, the, you know, the monument with like, the fast person looking, reaching person, or, or either there or in the corner of Merdeka Square, where peaceful protests and demonstrations and rallies can take place in a legal and orderly manner. And so on one occasion, in this speaker's corner in London, there's a story of a man who stepped up and presented his argument. He said this, They say there is a God, but I can't see him. They say there came a Christ who came to save, but I can't see him. And after a long speech about 
presenting his reasoning and his logic and how his conclusion is the right judgment. And so he, he is right in choosing to not believe in God, arguing that he's right to not believe in Jesus Christ. And after that speech, he came down. And then another man stood up and presented his speech. He said this, They say that there is a sun in the sky. They say there are stars in the heavens and the moon that shines at night. But I can't see them because I'm blind. But I know that they are there. And he stepped down. What was his message in response to the first man? He was pointing out how stubborn people can be in what we choose to not believe. The first man who was able to see, he used his ability to see, to choose to not believe that there is a God, that there is a, that there is a Christ who came. He uses his sight as logical reasoning against God, and he will not believe. Against the God who gave him his sight, against the God who gave him his mind and his ability to reason and make right judgments. He used that very gift against God and said he would not believe. But the blind man shows how even in his inability to see, how he, it still leads him to believe what he cannot see. People can be so stubborn in what we choose to not believe. It's because of our sin. It's because of our broken judgment, ability that is broken by sin to make the right judgments. Maybe we could still make right judgments about nature and natural things and, and the weather and problem solving. But when it comes to spiritual matters, our sense and ability to judge and discern are broken. And so for those of us here who have not personally put our trust in Jesus, consider Jesus' words carefully and see that having faith in Jesus, it's not just blindly believing. Someone told me this fantasy story. It sounds so nice about this God who is loving, and I'll believe. No, faith in Jesus comes from studying, careful study of Jesus' life his ministry, his teachings, putting to test all of his claims, trying to make a right and reasonable judgment about Jesus, coming to the conclusions that at least he is more than just a man. At least he is more than anyone else in the history where eyewitnesses have recorded account after account about him. So carefully continue your journey studying of Jesus, about Jesus Christ. Come to a careful, researched, thoughtful decision to believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God who has come to save sinners from their sin. For those of us who are believers, we remember that we are not disciples of Jesus by default. It's not because we're not disciples because we grew up going to church. We're not disciples because our parents are Christians. No, we are disciples because we have chosen to believe Jesus' claim that is outrageous and out of this world. It's foolish in the ears of those who don't believe. Because no other person, no other teacher, no other religion in history has made the claims that Jesus claims. 
he claimed divinity. He wasn't just pointing to God. He said that he is God, that he will die and that he will rise again on the cross, on the thir- uh, from the cross on the third day to save sinners who are destined for hell. And so believers, we must continue to use our discernment, our skills of interpretation, and come to the right conclusion that, yes, I believe Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is all that he says he is. I believe Jesus has accomplished everything he promised he would accomplish and that he truly is worthy of our worship. Not just the first time we came to believe in Jesus, but every single day as we continue in our study of God's word, Everything, every verse, every passage, we see how it points to Jesus and how it is a right and reasonable judgment to believe in him and give our whole lives to him. But sooner or later, if not already, there will be doubts creeping into our minds about who God says he is. God does say in his word that he is good. God does say in his word he is sovereign. God says that he loves us and that he's guiding us and he's always with us. But there will be situations we face when we're tempted to wonder if all God says is really all true. We may begin to doubt. These seeds of doubt grows and we question, is Jesus really worthy? When he asks us to make a sacrifice that seems too difficult to make, when he asks us to persevere in a situation that seems too difficult to persevere in, you will question. But I encourage you, when you doubt, praise God the problem is not God. Praise God the problem is us. And it's good news. It might not sound like an encouragement, but it's good news because our God does not change. He's not fleeting. He's not... uh, He's not shifting like shadows. It is us, the ones who are tainted with doubt. We go back and forth. On good days, we feel close to the Lord. And on difficult days, we'll feel far from him. That's us. But we can praise God. Because it's not God who's the problem. It's us. And we are in repair in God's hands by faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus Christ, he has sent us the Holy Spirit to fix our broken sense of judgment of right and wrong. And he continues to correct us. And we can trust that he has given us the mind of Christ where we can make right spiritual judgments about Jesus, about ourselves, about life. We can trust that the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us to help us remember and help us to face his promises and face our doubts. And so even in doubts, I encourage you, fight against any and all temptations of hypocrisy that Jesus brings up. We must be honest before God. Do not pretend to know and understand what is difficult to grasp about God. If you're struggling, be honest before the Lord. Be honest before your brothers and sisters in Christ what doubts you are wrestling with. That's just as much hypocrisy, to pretend to know what is difficult to understand as much as it is 
hypocrisy to pretend to not know and ignore what is plain and clear. So when in doubt, come to God, God, and say, I don't understand. Wrestle with him in his word. Wrestle with him in prayer. Wrestle together with brothers and sisters in Christ who can remind you that the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you. So make the right and reasonable judgment by addressing such hypocrisy before God. The third lesson is this. Make the right and reasonable judgment by believing Jesus justifies sinners freely as the Son of God. And so we'll need to take a closer look at these verses because it can initially sound disconnected from everything we've been talking about. Well, at least in verse 57, we see that Jesus summarized, uh, see Jesus summarized this main idea that we've been talking about thus far. He says, verse 57, Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Why do you not make right judgments about what you see and what you hear? But now there is a warning attached for those who do not make the right judgments. Because making a wrong judgment about spiritual matters, again, will be costly. How costly is the question then? To answer, he tells a parable in verses 58 to 59. He says this. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And so, so at first it sounds disconnected, but because it, it sounds like suddenly Jesus is giving legal advice on how to settle legal disputes among people and, and, and avoid court because you might have a bigger problem there. But that would make no sense in light of everything Jesus is saying. Instead, Jesus is describing how he will judge sinners on the day of judgment when he returns. Using this parable, he brings us into the heavenly courtroom where every sinner will stand before God. And God will make a right judgment about what he or she has done. And this parable uses common symbols that describe our true spiritual condition as sinners that we must learn to see and accept it's a common symbol to describe our true spiritual condition as a financial debt that we could not pay. It's because as we are created by God, we owe God as his creation perfect worship, perfect obedience, full surrender to live for God's glory alone. But because of our sin, we cannot give to God what we owe. And so we have this accruing debt that we will never be able to pay. It's compounding and it's overwhelming. The other symbol is that symbol where we stand before God in the heavenly courtroom. Where all of our sins will be accounted for. Now, in this image, this parable might sound strange because there are several characters, and we may be wondering who these actual characters refer to and what their role is in the judgment. And instead of getting lost in the details, trying to find out exactly who the accuser is, who the magistrate is, would be, 
the governing ruler, who the judge would be, and who the officer would be to put you in prison. The idea simply is that, and I will explain to you, that the accuser, the magistrate, the judge, and the officer, all referring to Jesus in our relationship to him. Now, it might sound strange because the accuser is generally the title for Satan in the Bible, for the devil. He is the one who accuses the adversary who continues to deceive and, and press on guilt, overwhelming and burdening our souls. But I want to explain and argue with you here that settling, it wouldn't make sense for the accuser here to be Satan because settling with Satan is not something that we should be doing. We should not make any bargains or deals with him. We should do no business with Satan. Instead, flee from his deception. Flee from his schemes. Not only that, it becomes clearer when we realize who it is that judges sinners to hell. It is not Satan, but God. God who has the perfect authority in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect judgment to punish sinners for their sins. Not only that, has not Jesus been presenting his accusations against the crowds, accusing them of their hypocrisy, accusing them why they're not using their right judgment in the ways that they should? But the difference is important because when Jesus accuses us, when he presents the charges against us, when he exposes us of our guilt, his accusations are not false accusations. They are true accusations of our true guilt of sin as we stand before a holy God. And when Jesus charges us for guilt, we must make the right and reasonable judgment to embrace his accusations, to embrace our guilt. And so I hope that you see here that Jesus is using this parable to warn us today. When we are exposed by Jesus of our guilt of sin, when we are exposed by Jesus of our hypocrisy, when we are exposed by Jesus of all of our hidden sins that no one else knows about through the power of his word, he is saying, do not make the effort to try to get the least possible punishment. Instead, settle your case. And how we settle our case before a an all-knowing, perfect, holy God, perfect, holy judge, is to admit when we are wrong. But this is not how earthly court systems work. Earthly court systems in our broken world are manipulated for, to our advantage, to, to people's advantage, especially those who are convicted. When people know that they are guilty, when convicted criminals know that they are guilty, they should admit their guilt. They should own up to their crime. But instead, in this broken world we live in, they use the court system to get a lawyer who will make every possible effort to present the case for innocence, trying to win the favor of the jury and the judge. But remember, it's a broken jury and a broken judge, a flawed jury and flawed judge who cannot make right spiritual judgments But in heaven's courtroom, 
There will only be true judgments, only be right judgments made against the accused. And so the parable all comes down to this. Jesus is warning, judge rightly or else be judged rightly for your sins. Judge rightly and come before God. See your sin when, when, the, when, when the Holy Spirit uh, presents your guilt. When Jesus, in his word, accuses us of our sin, accept and embrace our guilt. Don't try to work our way out of that guilt. Don't try to work your way for a lighter sentence because there will be none when we stand before a holy God in his heavenly courtroom. How foolish it would be to try to make a case for a lesser sentence before a holy God. And the foolishness is is reiterated in verse 59. Jesus says, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. It's a common coin in, in the U.S. In the Greek, it's a lepton. It's referring to the smallest possible uh, coin in, in production. I don't know if you've ever seen the smallest coin here in Indonesia, but I've received 50 rupiah coins before. And I tried to pay with this. Nobody would take it, but I received them somehow. And I'm not supposed to, I can't do anything with these. But just imagine with me, that's how, how, how our sins will be counted. Even the smallest sins that we think are minor sins. Even the hidden sins that we think don't hurt anybody. They will be fully accounted for when we stand before the judge of the universe when Jesus returns. So why would you dare to be judged rightly for your sins? Why would you not then after all that you have seen and studied and heard about Jesus, judge, make the right judgments about him. Make the right judgments about your sinfulness and how you deserve the wrath of God in hell. And come and cling to Jesus by faith in him. Believe as you look to the cross, as you look to his suffering, as he has taken our place as our substitute. Because when he came, he, he lived the perfect life we should have lived. And then he put into our account his perfect obedience and righteousness. And by his grace and mercy, he took upon our overwhelming, immeasurable debt of sin. And he put it on himself. And though he was sinless, he obediently went to the cross to die in our place. Our sacrifice, our perfect lamb, our substitute. Look to the cross and come to the conclusion that Jesus is all that he said he is. He is the Son of God. He is Lord and Savior who has come to save undeserving sinners like you and me. And so make the right judgment. As Jesus accuses us of our guilt, accept and repent of our sins and believe that Jesus is now our defense. Hold on to the promise that there's no more condemnation for those who believe. Those who are united with Christ because he has taken upon the fullness of God's wrath and the judgment we deserve upon himself. Make the right judgment. 
Remember, it's an impossible scenario. If we ever try to think we can stand before God trying to earn our way to heaven, it just won't work. The debt is too great. Don't try to fight for a lesser punishment by our good works. Make right with God now. Settle your case now. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. This is how we grow in faith in our relationship with God. This is how we can be more and more assured, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we continue to accept our sinfulness, continue to make no excuses for our hidden sins, but bring them to the light, making the right judgment about ourselves, and then see in Christ his perfect sacrifice as he died in our place. Come to Jesus. Find freedom in repentance. Find freedom from sin and from freedom, find freedom from guilt and be assured that when Christ returns, we will walk not into judgment, but we will walk into eternity with God to be with him, welcomed as we stand faultless before the throne into his eternal joy. Jesus asked the crowds, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? He asked the crowds, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And hopefully we looked at Jesus' questions and addressed them as best as we could in the time that we had. And so now as we close, I want to present some open-ended questions for us to carefully consider so that we too make, might make the right and reasonable judgment about Jesus, about ourselves. First question is this, what wrong judgments have you been making about Jesus? Like I said, it might take some time for you to reflect and consider. You might already know as the Holy Spirit brings them to your attention. Or you might need to spend this time, spend time this week as you study and wrestle with God's word. What wrong judgments you've been making about him. And second, related is this. How are your situations influencing your judgment about Jesus more than his word? What often hinders our full and complete trust in Jesus is our pain and suffering, like I mentioned. And it's such a powerful influencer because it creates doubt where we once didn't think was possible. And it clouds our judgment about God. We might have trusted in his care, in his love, in his goodness, his righteousness, his, his love, compassion, patience for us. But suddenly when we are thrown into suffering, it seems that all those truths that we, we once held on to seem to go out the door of our hearts. But be assured by faith that place of suffering and testing can be, can, that place of suffering can be a place of testing and refining of your faith where you can see as you persevere as you walk and wrestle with the Lord as you ask God, God, I just don't understand what you are doing. May the Holy Spirit refine your love for Jesus. May the Holy Spirit make your prayer life afresh and rejuvenate with passion and dependence upon the Lord. On the other hand, successes in life can also be effective influencers about our judgment, about ourselves, where we think and, and give ourselves more credit than we ought to. 
And so we should be careful to observe and interpret our actions and behaviors because a sense of pride and a comp- through accomplishment, a, a, a sense of self-dependence can creep in. And that also clouds our judgment. We feel so, we may feel, uh, we may think immaturely how we have overcome all sins. Thinking so highly about ourselves and our ability when, when we know we must depend on the Lord for all of our needs. We must depend on the Lord for His daily forgiveness, His grace, and His mercy. So consider what are the situations influencing your judgment and make sure you enter into times in the Word in battle over your heart, fueling your faith with truths and promises, memorizing and ingraining these truths in God's Word of His character, of His work of salvation into your heart. And lastly, who can help you remember the truths of Jesus and respond by faith in him? We have help from the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also have been given brothers and sisters in Christ here who can remind us of the truths, who can remind us to to make sure that we are taking in a regular diet of God's word, that we're not slacking in, in this battle of faith, daily faith. Who can help you walk in freedom and no more in guilt and shame? As there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can also help you keep accountable to make sure that you are not making light of sins and that you should come asking you the hard questions that you can confess your sins to one another and before the Lord? Who are the ones that can help you to to motivate you, help mo- motivate you with the gospel to do the right things for God out of love and joy for him, to help you persevere through the struggles, to remember that God, to remind you that God is good and that he is leading you. As you consider these questions, let's remember the one thing, because we must make the right and reasonable judgments. 